Hello and welcome to this week's episode, which is a discussion of the screenplay and film of the 2019 release, Ad Astra, which starred Brad Pitt, was written by James Gray and Ethan Gross, and directed by James Gray. The title, Ad Astra, taken from the Latin phrase meaning to the stars, which can convey both the literal concept of space travel and the symbolic idea of journeying to the limits of ambition and into the heavens. Today I'll be joined by Zosha Millman, editor and critic at Brightwall Darkroom, who I'll be introducing to you shortly, and we're going to compare notes on the early version of the screenplay, which has major differences with the final film. Both follow the story of a character named Roy McBride, who is an astronaut and son of a famous space explorer named Clifford, who has gone missing and was presumed dead, until some terrible events that appear to be linked to him require Roy to journey into space in the hopes of establishing communication with him again. We'll also discuss some of the echoes of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and Coppola's Apocalypse Now on the film. Once again, thank you for continuing to support the 21st Rewrite, which is now in its third year of providing you with interesting discussions about screenplays written in the 21st century. I really hope you enjoy this one. Without further ado, let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell and I'm joined this week by a very special guest. Sosha Millman is a film critic, senior editor of Brightwall Darkroom and the co-writer of the 30 Flirty and Film Newsletter. Sosha, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start out just before we begin talking about the film, which we've selected for this week, just with um, some of your work at bright wall dark room which i i think is one of the kind of great interesting little niche websites on the internet of uh, film criticism could you just tell us a little bit about what you do there and what the aim of the the magazine is for for people who haven't heard about it sure um so as senior editor i wear a lot of hats including like copy editing reading submissions editing that sort of thing but the general aim of the magazine is basically to do longer, thoughtful takes about film and television, although primarily film. And I think we've had one music video piece as well. But, you know, I think basically we're looking for something more than a review. And a little bit of personal essay stuff is certainly welcome. But, you know, it's a lot about just really delving into films and the heart of them in whatever way it kind of spoke to you as kind of a long, deep dive. Yeah, I think one of the things that it's always worth stepping back when we think of ourselves as people who talk about and analyze film is that you have this, well, at least before the pandemic, you had this room full of people, 100, 200, sometimes 300 people all watching the same thing, but everyone is having their own individual experience within that collective experience as well and you bring into every experience of a film or any other kind of piece of art accumulation of the things that you've experienced over your lifetime and there's different I think we notice as we talk about films and go back to them over different points in our lives the same film can have a different meaning for us 10 years later because we've gone on and experienced something new and so Ad Astra was the first essay of yours that I read on Bright Wall Darkroom with your essay, We Have a Problem. And, uh, you know, through that, I saw how there's kind of a weaving together in the writing style that you, you publish on there of a lot of your actual personal story as the writer 
and then your thoughts about the film itself. And and those two things, you don't try and separate them. You try and actually maximize on on how those two things combine to get the experience of the film. Yeah, and I guess I should say for listeners who are unfamiliar with at least my work, I so rarely put my personal story <laughs> anywhere. So that's kind of an aberration. But I think that is what makes Brightwell, I mean, that's certainly what attracted me to Brightwell Dark Room back in the day as a writer was just reading these kind of analytical takes that still delve so deeply into this thoughtful analysis of the actual craftsmanship of making a film, uh, while also kind of weaving in the very fundamental, like you were saying, of the idea that the film would hit you differently depending on your experience. You know, certain beats will stand out to you. And that can provide for some really offbeat essays and also some really beautiful ones. And I don't think those two are mutually exclusive at all. And feel free to say um, if, if there's something you don't particularly want to talk about from... Oh, no, don't worry about it. Everything that's in um, the essay is cleared to go, so. (laughs) Cool. Um, Yeah, one of the things that kind of I found quite compelling about your writing about Ad Astra is you you brought in, this is a film about a a father and son, and the son kind of living in the shadow of, of his father and kind of growing up without him and then going and having to confront him at a certain point. But you also brought into your own review your experiences with your own father and one of those things was that not only did you share this love of the the night sky and the stars and the you know dreams of one day traveling into space but also he instilled in you this requirement to read the book for a science fiction film before you watched it (laughs) and um I just think that's quite interesting. You know, if you would like to share anything else about that, I just think that's that's such an interesting thing to to have as a kind of requirement before you see this great film like 2001, you need to read the book. Yeah, I mean, my dad is a great guy, you know, very funny uh, in a lot of ways. And one of the things, I think honestly now at this point in my life, we probably differ on the idea of needing to read the book. But I think growing up, what was very important for him as a father with only daughters at the time was that we didn't feel limited in any way um, and that we just truly felt like whatever we could imagine was where we could be. So if he read us bedtime stories that were centered around men, he tended to change the pronouns. And if he didn't like the way a story treated you know, women characters, he would just kind of take that book or movie out of rotation. And so I think to some extent, the idea that you read the book first is an extension of that, right? It's the same argument that anybody who prefers the book over the movie adaptation would make, that you really want to have your own imagining of it and go into the movie and then be confronted by it. And I think, as I note in the essay, a fourth grader's imagining of 2001 A Space Odyssey is that it's really boring and when you watch the movie it confirms that as a fourth grader but having you know revisited as an adult there is certainly a lot I didn't pick up on although I maintain that the book did come out concurrently with the movie so he's probably wrong on that one yeah that that was a novelization I believe (laughs) of the film but by Arthur C. Clarke who had written the film with Kubrick so it's kind of an extension or something like that but I mean there's obviously a benefit to to experiencing both of them but whether or not that one is 
a film based on a book, I guess, is still a matter of. And, you know, like we were talking about with a kind of personal approach, uh, I think also, as I note somewhere in the essay, the that rule is still very much in effect in my dad's house. Um, and my baby sister is 13 years old and she went to see 2001 in the IMAX for the first time during its 50th anniversary re-release. And I asked her how she felt at intermission and she said that it was exciting and a fun ride, which is way different from where my answer would have been at her age. So, you know to each their own. And one of the things I think I've experienced as well by doing this podcast is um, sometimes I've also, when, for example, I've been working with someone who's wanted to talk about a certain film and that I haven't actually seen, I've also read the screenplay before watching the film in those kind of rare occasions where that's been possible. And that itself is also a, a really interesting thing because you're imagining how you as a director would take on this material you've got the same screenplay and nine times out of ten the way you imagine it would appear on screen is actually very different and so the screenplay itself is like this launching point it is a an intermediary work of fiction a written work of fiction in between the imagination of the writer and then the film that comes in the end and um i believe you've read the screenplay of ad astra the version that is currently available online is from 2016. So we're going to be talking about some of the big differences between the screenplay version and the film we actually get, because it did differ reasonably. Yeah, Yeah. there are some major changes. Um, (laughs) Kind of the overall trajectory of the story remains largely the same, but certainly the second, pretty much the entire second half of the film is is completely different in the screenplay, which is... um, I mean, you're the boss here, but I do think it's it's interesting to even say that the, like, I mean, the thrust of the film, the kind of beginning of the film is definitely the same, but I feel like reading them or reading the screenplay and watching the movie, I come away with kind of two very different, not just two very different films, but two very different philosophies almost in the, in the heart mm. of the film. And this is a, this is a co-written screenplay. Uh, so James Gray, the director, did write the screenplay with um, Ethan Gross. So I can't help but making comparisons to another screenplay that I've done on the podcast, which is James Gray's The Lost City of Said, which also did differ quite significantly from the film he ended up making. There were lots of scenes in in that particular story in which um, we got completely different periods of the main character's life in in his past and so James Gray I imagine is one of those those directors who rewrites and rewrites until he feels like he's he's got what he wants to make and he tends to make the film a lot more ambiguous than the screenplay the screenplay tends to be very direct and communicates the entire vision of the world and really brings it to life as a reader. But I found the screenplay of Ad Astra much easier to follow than the film in in many respects. It it gives you a lot of character motivation and things that are going on within the characters which have to be conveyed non-verbally in the film. Yeah, it's interesting. It has such a different take on even just the world. I guess I found myself reading it and wondering if 
he was writing this and then pared down, but imagined that the, you know, the film that we do see is just kind of a sliver of the world he imagined and it's all kind of in there. Or if he, you know, in the course of rewriting actually dropped some of these ideas or things because there's so many different science fiction kind of imaginings of robots that help us out and <laughs> all these weird, you know, I couldn't really imagine it in the, in the actual aesthetic of the film that, came out of that screenplay but it certainly feels like an idea that maybe bore into something else ultimately mm. there's something also in the screenplay version there's almost like a 1970s feel to it or this kind of child of the 1970s is maybe the only way i can describe it but there's these reference points for the characters Roy being the son, who's played in the film by Brad Pitt, and Clifford, the father, who is Tommy Lee Jones. The reference points of things like, oh, we used to watch old black and white movies together, and the Mars outpost called Helios, which um, only briefly really appears in the film, but it in the screenplay it's like this kind of Wild West, uh, like no one's in control, and it feels very much like the... Uh, the troops in Vietnam, really, in Apocalypse Now, which has a very similar uh, story structure to Ad Astra, that there's something very 1970s about everything. And then the film Ad Astra feels very much grounded in our time period, I think. Like, it almost feels like this could happen one or two generations from us. And it, it's much more grounded. Like you said, there's no, there's no robots or holograms. It's just subway on the moon and you know people fighting over resources and the united states against its enemies and these things that feel much more embedded in the kind of post 9-11 world yeah i mean even the the kind of spacesuit technology seems like a big foothold into our world where it's not it's not this kind of grand sci-fi world where everybody lives in a spacesuit and just jaunts outside for a moonwalk or anything like that. Like it, the things that they wear when they go on a spacewalk in the film of Ad Astra is very clearly drawn from the spacesuits that we know and love, um, if a little pared down, a little more simple. And I think that in the script, you know, again, it's all imagining, it's all just kind of description, but you get a sense that there's a little bit of a grander idea about what this looks like, or, you know, spacesuits that are fit, you know, you press a button and they fit snug on you or anything like that. And I think that one of the interesting things about seeing this film come to life is actually the way that the movie is able to kind of play with the idea that the things we have might not fit us perfectly on in that kind of sense. You know, the the many different ways they find to fit Brad Pitt into a spacesuit. And sometimes it looks a little too tight and sometimes he looks, you know, a little even 1970s, almost a kind of a matching sweatsuit deal. But more often than not, he almost just kind of looks swamped and swallowed by them. Um, there, there is a, there's an element of filmmaking, especially American filmmaking, which is kind of to tell the same story over and over again, the hero's journey. People are very familiar with the, hero's journey um the key milestones in each of these stories the entry into the unfamiliar world the big confrontation at the end and then i think there's another kind of tradition that's going on at the same time in ad astra which is it's linked to joseph conrad's heart of darkness which was reinvented for the screen 
in the 70s by Francis Ford Coppola as Apocalypse Now. And there's some other films that share this kind of rhythm. I do think 2001 A Space Odyssey shares it as well. And even films that are completely just based in character studies like Paris, Texas. They are often just, these kind of films are basically a journey, as Joseph Conrad called it, Heart of Darkness. It's into the heart of darkness, it's into this place. And at the end, there's going to be a confrontation, there's going to be a revelation, and that is the climax. And so I think one of the reasons why Ad Astra has this very um, bipolar reception when you look at the reviews, there's kind of, there's a lot of ups and downs and there's not really a consensus on it. I think it's because that type of storytelling is quite unfamiliar to certain types of audiences who are expecting the hero's journey and expecting that bit at the end not just being the anti-climax of when Roy actually confronts Clifford but they want to know how he gets back to earth and how he's changed when he's come back and you know have this kind of moment of elation at the end and this really is just about him traveling to this this last place the planet Neptune basically as far away from earth as we can feasibly imagine us going because it's at the outer reaches of our own solar system and um i think you described it as well as kind of anticlimactic the ending in in your own thoughts yeah um i mean some of that like capitalism is always a little to blame <laughs> um i feel like there's like nobody quite knows how to sell a story like this you know it's not just this kind of space tomb almost of just you know a father-son story it's also such an internalized story um and i think it kind of bobs and weaves any sort of neat classification um because even though i think ultimately it is an internal story and it is a very internalized journey we do have that kind of voiceover that kind of tricks you into thinking that you are getting the full picture but i think like any sort of good (laughs) good narrative there's an act of deception that's happening there where you can kind of really, once you're in it, or if you kind of allow yourself to just kind of fall into the movie as opposed to expecting this kind of laser fight space adventure, you end up with something that's so interesting in just kind of the distance between who Roy says he is, even to us who, you know, it's unclear where this narrative is even coming from, if we're listening to his thoughts, if this is some secret diary or what. But there's definitely a distance between that and what we actually know he's feeling and this kind of change that he doesn't acknowledge for so long within his life. Yeah, in the screenplay, the voiceover isn't there. And so we do get it as a different type of narrative because I I do feel the screenplay itself is easier to follow. You understand who is who. What is at stake? Why, in many respects, why Roy does what what he does is a little bit more spelt out for us. Whereas the voiceover is more stream of consciousness. And it, it it's great because it gives you this moment within the film to reflect on where he might be. But he doesn't know entirely why he's doing what he's doing. Or he just knows how to get from one step to the next, from one step to the next. And then has to change with the situation as well because he's discovering new things along the way the mission he initially signs up for isn't the mission he eventually goes on Uh, i think at the beginning he's 
not even really certain if his father's still alive. Yeah, I mean, there's the old kind of screenwriting difference between a character's want and a character's need. And I think it's so interesting that this movie, even within itself, kind of sells it to you as the thing he needs is to see his dad and know what his dad was doing or know that it was worth it in some way. And I just think the absolute coldness of that final scene is so much better in the final result than it was honestly in the the script for me where he just never finds his dad. I think there's just something so interesting about the idea of confronting something that you just you really kind of knew in your bones you might have to, but you never wanted to believe it. And watching that play across his face is so much better than the final scene in the in the script, which is what he happens upon a bunch of people who who all kind of agreed to be dead together at the end of this mission, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's a very, it, they feel almost like two different characters, to me, honestly, the one in the first, well, I guess we don't know if this is the first draft of the screenplay, but the one in the 2016 script versus the one in the final movie, where in the first one, in the script, he's so much more externalized in this kind of I couldn't I couldn't really get a grip on it to be honest I couldn't understand they were kind of thrown around some mental mental health terms which was a little little sus for me but um I think there was much more much more kind of reaction on his point and kind of underscoring how he felt emotionally in speaking to people whereas in the film I just I think it's so much more elegant to have that kind of play out in somewhere in between the transparent narrative we get from him and the brick wall reactions he gives to everyone else. And it's so much more interesting watching all these different people come at him with these emotions that he either refuses to process or just is so suspect of where they're coming from that he can't even he can't even grasp it. Yeah, I think uh the first thing to really clarify for, for everyone who has seen the film but hasn't obviously read this version of the screenplay, the earlier imagination of how this was going to be, it's quite explicit. Uh, obviously, Roy is being monitored, and that is recurring in the film as well, how they monitor his heart rate and check his stress levels and do these psychic evaluations. But in the screenplay, he has what they call mild autism. And so, in some ways, the addition of autism works because it helps to explain and it makes a character, I'd say, in a way, it's negative to use it, though, because it makes a character seem predictable in the sense that, oh, he would do this because he has autism. And now, by removing that, it's not to say that that might not be an element of his character and maybe that's part of the direction that Brad Pitt was given was to say this character is going to react to certain situations in a very non-emotional way or non-expressive way but and he's going to be very fixated on details but the character is now a lot more ambiguous and open to interpretation than when they were defining it and saying this is this thing this is autism and then by not communicating that directly to the audience that leaves us more free to come up with our own explanations of what it is. What type of man is Roy? Why is he, does he seem so repressed? Why has he 
kind of let his relationship with his wife fall apart? Why is he completely fixated on work? The answer can now be found in the relationship, entirely in the relationship with his father, rather than anything else that might be something he doesn't have control over. I think control is such an interesting way to put it because the screenplay really kind of took it out of the character's hands. Um, I mean, the introduction that we are supposed to know or we or the audience are supposed to know that uh, Roy has autism doesn't come from Roy saying anything to that effect. It comes from uh, early on in the film, he gets briefly hospitalized after, I guess the equivalent in the movie would be when he falls off the antenna um and he gets hospitalized and as he's talking to a nurse or something the nurse looks down at the chart and like scribbles it down or sees it written down or something and it felt a little ham-fisted i don't know like it's something that's shameful or bad or just you know a little bit kind of clunky in its introduction but truly just removed from roy and just purely for the audience's sake and i think if they do something similar with when he's talking about his father he alludes to a mental health break but it's unclear at that point in the script why or what we're supposed to know about clifford mcbride that might give roy and by proxy the space com people the idea that there's some sort of mental health thing at stake for clifford but I think in the screenplay, it's so much about, it's a much more standard story of everyone trying to control him and him kind of fraying under the stress of this all versus I think in the movie, it's a lot more about seeking, just you know, seeking connections, seeking understanding. And frankly, that goes both ways. I think a lot of people uh, like Donald Sutherland's character, who's a colonel, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, he keeps asking him, are you okay? Is this a problem for you? And he's got that nice, uh, jovial Donard, Donald Sutherland thing about him. And Roy just does not know at all what to make of that. He just keeps kind of shrugging it off and saying, you know, is this part of my psyche, Val, or anything? He just doesn't, he has no way to respond honestly, I think. But maybe that, you get the sense that that kind of kicks something off within him that maybe even if he can't answer honestly, he can start thinking about it more clearly. And I think there's so many examples of people just seeking to connect with him and him not being able to return that for so long. And, you know, ultimately he does by the end. It's a very beautiful journey in that way. I'm also, I'm also going to read the character bio because I, I they're always really short in screenplays. And sure. I really love how Actually, this one is quite long for a screenplay because often you'll just get one or two lines to describe an entire character. Mm -hmm. But um, there's so much written about him here that I think it's actually worth quoting for people to be able to hear it. Roy McBride, his eyes are light blue, seemingly friendly, but reveal little about the man himself. He is even-tempered, but one would not call him kind. There is an icy quality to him. Still, he is not overtly cruel or petty. And to talk to him, one could never question his intentions or his integrity. Roy speaks slowly, formally, deliberately, as though he does not ever want to repeat himself. He seems guarded, sincere, precise, competent. His face is blank, but prone to the occasional awkward joke, and those jokes are made almost for self-amusement. He does not seem morose. That's so much detail about the character. For in you know, in terms of a screenplay, usually you do just get one line 
I'm yeah. thinking back to Children of Men now where I think it's uh, the main character is just described as being, you know, tired of life. You know, that's <laughs> that's basically what you get. Um, and with Roy, you get told so much, but you also still he's an enigma. Even with all those words, you're thinking, how would I even how would I even act out that character? How would I how do I imagine this character in my mind? Um, there's there's a few allusions to him being a bit like uh, Neil Armstrong, who again is is quite well known as being quite enigmatic. That people who have obviously many many people have come across Neil Armstrong at different points in his life, and all of them have said it's very hard to get him to open up and to be very honest about himself. But when you talk to him about the mission or the work that he does, that's when he lights up and that's when he talks about all these things but the emotional connection isn't there. Yeah, I think it's also interesting how the screenplay specifically says, you know, he's not necessarily overly friendly, but he still has that icy quality, but he smiles a lot. Like he reacts like a human. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably something that got lost a little in the adaptation. Um, I think Brad Pitt's boy McBride is very morose for possibly good reason. He seems to be at a pretty particularly tough time in his life um mm -hmm. but i think it's it's always interesting to see emotion written into a screenplay where they really want to stress you know somebody's happy or somebody's angry and i think the fact that the screenplay specifically says his face often lights up with little motivation that's such an interesting way to mask all of his issues father issues abandonment issues like control of his emotions via this militarized space force this whole thing that like to some extent it doesn't take much to make him smile but that also doesn't mean anything is such a mm -hmm. such a great character touch i think and the sense that that is kind of the defense mechanism that what keeps him safe what stops the prying is the the smaller things the acknowledgments the smiles the making a joke at the right moment they can also be ways to kind of keep other people at a distance. Yeah, there's the part where they're telling him his father is still alive. But before they do that, they're asking how his father's uh, leaving made him feel. Uh, and I think in the movie, it plays out, you know, he's constantly checking against the person who's checking his temperature from the corner. There's somebody jotting down notes about his reactions, and he's kind of hyper aware of this. But in the screenplay, he's the one who's kind of taking it a little more in stride. He's the one bringing levity to the situation um, and laughing about it even. You know, he, he doesn't quite crack a joke, but he definitely laughs to kind of try to like boost the mood of the room, which everyone else in the room is not having. And I think that's such a great, <laughs> it's such an interesting thing as a character. But I think ultimately, there is something more interesting to me about the silence and kind of the beaten down reservedness of on-screen Roy McBride. I think, you know, in journalism school, they always tell you that one of the most powerful tools you have available to you in an interview is silence. You just don't, you know, when somebody finishes answering your question or seems like they're about to finish, you let that silence hang in the air and you'd be surprised how many people will just say something more, might say the money quote or something. Um, and I think to some extent that, feels like a more true or interesting reaction for someone who, you know, is scared a lot of the time. I, you know, a lot of 
both parts of these stories go into talking about how he's not, his heart rate never goes above 80 or whatever, which I think while I was mm. watching the movie, I did take my heart rate um, just to see <laughs> comparably what that would be like. Um, but it's, you know, like he's dealing with so much hurt and anger, but also fear of what happens if he can't complete or if he can't focus up once he falls off a space antenna and pull himself out of this spin. You know, there's so many lovely visualizations for exactly his emotional journey, honestly, baked into the script of just what it feels like to be kind of beaten down by the world. And you know something's wrong, but you don't know how to stop being wrong in that way. That's that's very interesting. I'm trying to think of the points in the film in which it does get your heart perhaps racing a bit more than than others, because one of the... I think one of the things that is a, an element of film that is often overlooked is the effect it has on the audience. Obviously, with horror, this is the central idea. It's like, how do we get a scare into this? How do we get a reaction out of people? With comedy, it's getting a laugh. But even with something that's like quite a pensive drama like this, there are these moments where you want to have a, a shock here or there or some, some trepidation. And I do think... There is, certainly for me, I, I recognize those moments in probably the early exposition scene. I, I feel some sort of connection to it because it's so similar to the um, the beginning of Apocalypse Now, where basically the exact same kind of scene plays out, which is Martin Sheen is called into this room with a bunch of top military officials, and they tell him everything we're going to tell you right now is classified this is Colonel Kurtz, this is what he's up to, your mission is to go and find him and to terminate his actions by any means necessary. And then there's certain moments, I think, in the screenplay that you want to try and add in that that feeling, I think, is definitely there with the escaped baboon on the Mayday ship that they, they go to check on, and probably when they're approaching Neptune as well. There's just these moments where you it's the uncertainty is is very enjoyable. It it kind of draws you in as an audience member because you can't really predict how it's going to go. And that's kind of part of the unconventional style of Ad Astra. Um, you're never really sure what's going to happen next, I don't think. Yeah, and I think for me, when I was reading through the screenplay, it was very, like you've been saying, it's very interesting to see kind of the bones of what would become something else or you know, lines that come out of a different character's mouth entirely, storylines that were just wholesale dropped. But I think, you know, the fact that the baboon made it into both versions is so interesting because it kind of primes you for this idea that that there's this like madness of space or something or that, you know, we're, that, you know, everything that this baboon is doing is just, you know, an extension of what humans are doing to each other. Um, and it, I feel like all that sets you up for going into the final act and thinking that something similar is going to happen. And I think it's just so much more grounded and lower stakes than, yeah, that kind of high blood pressure, rabid baboon coming at your face um, or exploding in an airlock or something like that, um, which is probably, I agree, that's probably the part that I get most like viscerally worked up at as opposed to other parts of the film. But 
yeah, that the baboon really sticks with you. That's really what I'm thinking about right now. <laughs> mm, certainly, uh, I think on the big screen it was <laughs> even more effective as well. I can imagine. I might just be saying that because I miss the cinema. Um, <laughs> I do feel that you know, I, I with this podcast, it's always about 21st century films, and I I did some film studies at school, and I remember films that we were looking at at that time period were films from the 70s and 80s and 60s and there was much more interpretation of these kind of symbolic things in film which doesn't tend to be so common i don't think in in more modern films like just just kind of symbolism for symbolism's sake and then people kind of all having their different interpretations i'm thinking of things like uh in The Shining, when he walks past one of the hotel rooms and there's a man in a bear suit, and these kind of things, you know, that those are just moments that are just completely bizarre and open to all these kind of interpretations. But in a way, the baboon scene in Ad Astra feels like one of those where you're wondering, you know, is this some sort of commentary on our endeavors with science and trying to utilize animals to, to learn about? whatever scientific knowledge we think we can get from studying these animals. But in reality, you know, once one is out, it doesn't matter if you're in a lab in space or if you're in the jungle, it's, it's always going to be a threat to humans of this very primal nature. I, I honestly don't entirely know what to make of the scene itself. Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on something so interesting, which is that, like, it can mean so many different things. And I think that while it's probably neater from a screenwriting standpoint if it just means something to the effect of kind of you know retreating to this primal natural state that you're going to carry with you you know light years through the universe or whatever um but i think it's also it's just interesting to set up the idea of kind of the madness of space and all these things that can go wrong and what it means and you know you're stealing yourself for this kind of true lunatic uh at the end of this journey um and ultimately clifford mcbride is alarmingly lucid in his absolute severity towards his son and how much he just you know he's so stoic and he just kind of freely admits that he wanted nothing more than to leave earth and be exactly where we find him um and he just you know even if he calls it mm. you know home he says i never thought of home which is always an interesting kind of paradox to have somebody refer to something as home but not feel like it's home at all i think also the the baboon kind of or is one of many action check marks that roy mcbride goes through um and in the screenplay though that one plays out fairly similarly but there's a lot that's changed around it um you know he's much more openly angry about the stop you know when they get mm. back when he brings the captain yes. back and somebody mm. says what happened out there he's like this is why i didn't want to fucking stop and it's just very like animated <laughs> um in a way that we never get in the movie at all um and you know it's it's a lot more about him breaking along the way and kind of this traditional you know we have so many stories throughout time of kind of men going on these journeys and compromising their morals in some way. And so in the screenplay over and over again, Roy turns to violence. He asks for a gun to arm himself. He actively kills people who get in the, his way. 
all in service of this mission. And in the film, it's more quietly devastating, but I think it, it is still devastating that so many people die in the result of this mission. And hmm. in a lot of ways, he's not responsible. I mean, he's responsible for sneaking on a ship and getting in the way of what they're doing and causing these deaths in some way. But he is, the film almost goes out of its way to make him not directly responsible for zero G hitting and all of a sudden people fall and crack their head open or somebody shoots a gas canister and he's wearing a suit. So everybody else chokes around him. Yeah. He gets Um, very lucky. Yeah. It's kind of this accidental death and destruction. Um, And I think because the film has more of the kind of legend of his father, that's guiding his way and kind of overshadowing him, you get more people telling him over and over again how great it is to that his you know that his dad exists and you know and straight up I think I wrote down this quote of the the captain on the ship, the one who gets attacked by the baboon, says, Your dad is the reason a lot of us are doing what we're doing. And it's mm-hmm. just kind of a nice little throwaway line that kind of neatly sums up he's the reason why everybody is here and he is also the reason why everybody will die because they are here. Uh, and that's just how it goes, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, that comes back a little bit to Neil Armstrong again as well because of the fact that certain things that that someone can do in the course of a career, they can just take on this this symbolism that almost every astronaut will say they were in some way inspired by Neil Armstrong. But to what extent do they actually know what he, he was like as a person or his character? It's it's kind of the deed. It's the example that that kind of creates this mythology around him. And he's still, you know, I I mean, I read his his biography when I was looking at First Man, and he is one of the most like interesting people to read about because he has lived this really really fascinating life. He lived through some huge events. Not only did he go to the moon, his daughter died as well when from cancer when when she was a child and he suffered a lot of personal pain and all these things and this there is a lot to learn from him but you kind of get the feeling that those astronauts who are saying Clifford McBride is the inspiration for a lot of us it's not really him as an individual it's what he represented it's what he kind of represented as things that are possible the same way once someone broke the four-minute mile, other people could do it. This guy traveled to Jupiter and Saturn in the world of the story. So now we can do something like that. We can push the frontiers of human knowledge. Just kind of going back to the, the baboon part of it, in the screenplay they have a bit more exposition around that. Mm-hmm. And they, I think it's also used in the screenplay version as the midpoint of the story which doesn't really work, and it's it's not the midpoint of the film. But it's used as a midpoint, I think, to allow them to give this bit of exposition that the Norwegians who died on, on this ship that sent out a Mayday signal, they leave this message saying their supplies have failed, they can no longer see the Earth, and then it ends, no more Earth, and we are adrift without purpose. We have no hope in sight, we have decided the only logical thing and then it cuts out and so like that is kind of a parallel with kind of what happens to clifford at some point that this the absence of other people the absence of earth the absence of a connection to a wider society kind of drives people crazy 
there's always questions to ask about when something is timely or not, but most of us having spent a lot of time in extended isolation recently compared to when Ad Astra was actually released, you know, to hear that Roy spends 79 days alone on a spaceship, it's, it's a lot more relatable to us now than perhaps it could have been two years ago. The idea of actually just being completely isolated and what that can do to people's mental state, like we have more experience now of just how much we crave those connections and those shared activities and just a semblance of normal life. And to be asking those questions about, is it worth it? Is it worth going to Neptune and spending the rest of your life there? If it would mean missing out on everything else, an entire life on Earth, it it takes on maybe a bit more of a a meaning to us now. Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely felt that on the most recent rewatch, the whole kind of montage at the end where he has what like 79 days or something on his way from mars to neptune then he's just kind of cycling through thoughts and old video messages and regrets and i mean truly i guess i kind of forgot about how much we are supposed to think that he loses it a little bit you know there's so many (laughs) kind of dreamlike cuts of him fading in on seats and just like shaking his head back and forth and it is really alarming but i don't think it never quite made an impact on me until this most recent watch of just like, ah, yes, more familiar as a, as a concept. And I think it's so interesting because Roy McBride has so many moments about how he should have listened more, been more tender. And I think just, he also speaks of kind of rage that he's hiding underneath him, which doesn't really, it almost never comes up. I can't say it never comes up because I know, you know, in a couple emotional checkpoints he kind of loses his cool a little bit but it's so reserved it never seems to kind of boil up into this you know rage is such an evocative word I think for what that is and I think there's something so interesting about the idea of this film as kind of repressed masculinity and kind of not being able to talk about your feelings in that way and instead just kind of letting the silence kind of balloon up into your soul and just make you feel like you can't show anybody this side of yourself because they might judge it too harshly. And so you just kind of self-isolate and kind of self-harm in that way. There's that lovely moment in in the film version, though, right, where he's doing that psych evaluation and he he starts opening up to the computer. And then it just kind of cuts him off and says he's been approved. And he realizes that what he's actually been doing is he just opened up like and it was it was a huge thing for him but this uncaring evaluation system it just it just vanishes it, it wasn't a real person he opened up to yeah and i mean to the same extent that happens right as he gets to mars and then when he actually you know throws away the script they gave him and just sort of tries to connect with his dad and in another sense of him just mm-hmm. opening up and just being vulnerable that's the thing that actually we're led to believe either gets results or you know pushes him too far over their very specific emotional edge being kind of yeah. competent for work and i think it's interesting because as he's climbing through the what the underground lake to get off of mars basically his internal monologue is all about wondering if he is his dad and if he's going to become his dad and what it means that they're so similar in this way and i think ultimately he finds a man who was exactly what he said he was you know he he doesn't have anything 
inherent necessarily wrong with him. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with him. I don't, but you know, he doesn't have anything that's wrong. He's not seeing the world wrong. He's seeing the world just exactly as he hoped. Um, You're referring to his perception, right? Not the fact he killed 41,000 people. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good note. Um, but yeah, you know, his kind of perception or his motivation, I guess, uh, yeah. is certainly different than Roy's, which I think Roy's is, Roy is kind of wrestling this whole time with, do I really want to be this far from the sun, this far from the earth, this far from the people I love? Um, is that really what I crave? And his dad's answer is yes. And Roy comes to realize that maybe he's going to go back to earth and try to figure something out. And, you know, he might get back together with Liv Tyler, his wife, or he might just live, you know, on earth feeling better. You know, there's just that kind of nice Brad Pitt kind of wry smile in his final emotional mm -hmm. checkpoint in the film, um, which I think is it's a little pat to kind of end with basically the exact same thing that opened the film and just be like, yeah, you see the differences, you see how we came full circle. Um, but I think it's a little nicer than the way the screenplay leaves us, which is just basically sending a letter to his mom that's like, you were enough parent, which is funny because in the screenplay, she doesn't feel like that much of a presence. You know, it's not like he's constantly wrestling with what it meant to be raised just by a single mom. He's constantly wrestling with what it feels like to not have a dad. And his mom barely enters into that fact, I think, at least on page. Yeah, I remember when I was talking to David Rabinowitz, who, who wrote Black Landsman, he, um, he was talking about whether or not they, the, the phone scenes were going to work, the, the fear that they wouldn't work, because what's boring in film, it's having two people on <laughs> different ends of the phone, and obviously it works brilliantly in Black Landsman because it's one of the best moments of comedy in the film. But yeah, he said, what's more boring than than a telephone call is of course writing a letter which is something else that Ron Stilworth did he you know he wrote to David Duke and you can't put that in a it's just it's just boring isn't it you know mm -hmm. having a having someone write a letter so that bit at the end yes it is opening up but I, I think in the film they found much more powerful ways to get the same effect without it using that kind of device of like I'm writing a message to you or something like that the moment you picked out which is when he's on Mars and he sends that second message to his father and he really, really does open up and that is why he's declared essentially unfit to continue the mission, that becomes the midpoint of the story. It's not finding this Mayday ship, which doesn't really affect change in the character. This is what affects change in the character and that's combined with finding out that the director of um, the Mars base... Uh, who's called Helen Lantos, I believe, uh, she kind of explains to him that Clifford is responsible for killing his fellow crew members and her parents were on board that same ship. So that's where you get this midpoint where Roy has to really, really make a decision here. Is he going to accept that this is who his father is and that he's you know, a, such a danger, or is he going to take action and get involved and try and put a stop to it? And that second part of the film is, it's gone past that point of no turning back. I think he's willing to do anything to try and make it there and try and confront his father. What we get in the screenplay is a really different second half. Of course, we 
have seen some interesting images early on about his childhood memories and a memory of playing with this little girl who he then meets on Mars and turns out to be his sister. And basically, the idea that you've explained about Clifford being happy to live alone in space, in the screenplay, it's kind of a mix that he he had two parallel lives. He had two families, a family on Earth and a family in space. And that uh, Francesca, who is Roy's sister, is from this other relationship that he, he had on Mars. It's an interesting alternative. It doesn't really fit the same story in the way that we get it in the film. And it's almost impossible for us to really imagine that really being a part of it anymore. But, you know, how did you react when you got to those pages and you were reading this thing that just didn't happen in the film at all? Like, what did you think about the inclusion of, of Francesca? Yeah, it definitely felt kind of strange to be hit by this utter curveball of a story I thought I knew in some sense. Up to that point, it was kind of certain things were a little out of order or the motivation for first he's going to go to the moon and then he's going to go to Mars was a little different. But then I got to this point and it was just, uh, I, I mean, reading the script, I was just like, this is not probably, if this was made as it is, this is not a movie I would enjoy. And I think that this reveal would be a big reason why it's both very fast. You know, it just, it happens in this kind of split second midpoint reversal, just, you know, it happens and it's done. And then she dies Uh, I mean, kind of on camera, but off camera, I guess in an interrogation in some way. And it didn't, I think, make for an interesting understanding on Roy's part of who his dad was. I think it's up to that point in the script, it's kind of played as his dad went on this mission and it was sad. And then they knew that something happened and that his dad was at fault, but we didn't quite understand what. And I think that this just kind of makes it more confusing and just not as not as emotionally true. It just felt like a very different kind of midpoint of the film. And I think it changes the whole tenor of his relationship with his dad. I don't know. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the way it's written, it's not just completely out of nowhere. Like uh, James Gray has put in these sequences of kind of... Um, unexplained images, unexplained memories that this is supposed to be the revelation for. But at the same time, it never it never feels like that is the thing Roy needs to figure out. It's not like the memories themselves contain anything, except for the fact that he had not known he had a sister. That That's all the memory contains, as opposed to the fact that you could argue, okay, it extends a little bit more and you can say he never really knew his father and his father had tried in some way to, at some point in the past, bridge that gap and try and connect the two families and realized it wasn't going to work. But yeah, it just, it feels like another story is being told. I think it's interesting reading her perspective because it feels like there's an innate I mean, I think it touches on a difference between this version of the movie and the final version of the movie, which is that the script kind of takes for granted that people just go crazy in space. Like, it's unclear 
where that motivation comes from. But, you know, uh, Francesca specifically says, you've seen for yourself how hard it becomes when the earth is no longer visible. Uh, you mm. know, people go insane. They, you know, it's just kind of this standard, like, of course you would go insane in the vacuum of space. And I think the advantage of, you know, a not screenplay version of this and kind of a lived film version is that you can take that and put it into these big shots of the, I'm thinking of all the different kind of fades between a picture of Roy McBride into just not just space, but dark space. Like you don't see any stars. You don't see any, you barely see any planets or anything like that. You know, it's just, it's just bleak darkness and kind of a rocket ship Mm -hmm. going through it. And that feels very suffocating. And I think it feels more, evocative than hearing a bunch of people tell me that they've gone crazy because they're in space. Um, and that's why, you know, they have a second family or they decided to like all end their lives on a Norwegian scientific mission or something. And I think it's much more interesting to kind of balance the idea that space and kind of thinking about the magnitude of the universe is inherently mind boggling to the point that it might break your consciousness in some way but it's also enthralling, you know, it's the same kind of effect of sitting on an airplane and looking out at the clouds and just kind of being hypnotized by looking out the window Mm. and just kind of taking the splendor of the universe in, in that respect and how it might just be not everybody responds the same way. But I think, yeah, the inherent, it was just so pat, I think to just have it be like, there's a second family, everyone goes crazy in space you too can join the dark side and go crazy in space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wonder now that you now that you put it that way, I, it got me thinking. I wonder if that might be a legacy of James Gray writing in the shadow of Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. and saying, "Well, you know, in Heart of Darkness, people go crazy because of the completely barbaric way that uh, Africans are being treated by colonial settlers." that the utter inhumanity of the Belgian Congo is just sickening and that is causing people to go insane. And then in Apocalypse Now, you've got this with the Vietnam War. There's atrocities going on everywhere. The fabric of society has broken down and it's it's every man for himself and civilians are being killed. There's Agent Orange and Napalm and just horrifying things going on. And you can't just go into space and say, well... The stars are like that, really, when you think about it, you know, <laughs> staring yeah. at nothing and having no one around you is a very different, it, it, can, it can make you go crazy, but it's the isolation. It's not the same thing as looking at these horrifying realities that, that happened in specific periods of time in specific countries and how that can affect people's well-being. I mean, it's, it's a miracle if anyone comes out of an experience like Vietnam feeling completely fine and unchanged by that yeah i think especially that's such a great comparison because i think in a story like apocalypse now that's so much dealing with the brutalities of war which don't necessarily have an allegiance to one side or another but also kind of the madness of being on the ground and being someone instructed to carry out these brutalities and i think there is a benevolence both to kind of you know, the natural world order, which of course extends to outer space. Um, But also, you know, space calm as we see them in the film and in the screenplay is not great. 
to work for, certainly, but (laughs) they're not necessarily instructing you to go out and kind of, I don't know, every word seems incomplete, but kind of they're not instructing you to go out and harm other people all the time. You know, that's not the, that's not the mission. And while it might not be as pure as kind of the Star Trek directive, it's still the idea that, you know, the thing that you are conquering is outer space. And really what they're trying to do is find intelligent life as far as we know. So it's interesting to kind of have, I think, the screenplay draw a little bit more from Apocalypse Now, where it has that kind of setup, like there has to be an antagonist, there has to be this kind of negative force that is suppressing us. And in the ultimate film, the thing that's suppressing you is just kind of the limits of your own imagination about what the universe has to offer you. And that I think that starts to get towards the the ending itself of the film explains so much of what we're asking along the journey. And that is what drove Clifford, who is he? It's one of the powerful things of film is, of course, what happens off screen can be much more tense than something you actually show. The suspense, the idea that there is a presence there. And then when we actually meet Clifford, not not these kind of ghostly recordings of him and not these cryptic communications. It's He's just like elderly, frail shadow of the man he used to be. And Roy, like all children, has an image of his parent that he just eclipses. In that instant, he sees, this is not who I remember. This is not what I thought. This is not who I thought Clifford was my entire life. Like I thought of him as this hero, this brave astronaut who was journeying to the ends of the earth and he was doing that full of purpose and optimism and belief was carrying him through and you meet him and he's he's just nothing anymore he's just collapsed into this self-imposed misery this belief that nothing's worth doing anymore and he's he's confronting something that isn't what we thought all the way through and that i think is why it really kind of hits us i think at least the audiences that reacted well to this film i think it's that moment that's what makes or breaks the film for us it's it's acknowledging that moment of how this kind of internal misery has led to some some action that he turned his fury at himself back on people on earth that didn't need to be harmed for any reason other than his his own self-pity this is in the film not the screenplay right in the film i'm thinking yeah yeah i mean i think it's also it's interesting the way they play with kind of the characterization of clifford in the film because he i think he says that the the kind of shock waves that they've been sending to earth are accidental right like they didn't mean something happened and he couldn't stop it but he does kind of take ownership for you know we see the video halfway through where he's like so i had to kill the people who mutinied against me and also some people who were innocent. And then when Roy shows up, he admits to, I think, killing, you know, we see three or four bodies kind of floating around and it seems like those are recent deaths. He kind of says something to the effect of my last loyal few got panicked and I had to kind of dispatch them to keep doing all this work, which like you're saying, he is almost incapable of doing this work. He admits, you know, the cataracts make it hard for him to see. He's very frail. His sweater is very kind of frayed and wearing down. It is just kind of 
a great example of what it feels like to kind of acknowledge that your parents are actual people and were people before you and were people outside of your conception of them. And I think it's such a richer well to draw from than kind of this father through the glass that we get in the screenplay where I think when he ultimately does find him in the script, he's brain dead. He's being kept alive just like his organs are maybe to power Mm -hmm. the ship. I was kind of confused, but um, you know, there's no hope of any sort of connection. There's no hope of any sort of conversation, certainly. And I think that kind of has this lost dad and Amber kind of feel where even though he's learned so much more, he doesn't really have to confront it in the same way where um, I mean, I just, I can't say enough about Brad Pitt's performance in this film. I think it's a very singular example of such great, if you watch it with a close eye, you understand every beat, every wave, every like slight twitch on his face. And I think that scene with Tommy Lee Jones is as good an example as any of just taking it all in uh, and kind of it being the true test. Unlike everything we've seen so far, that kind of being the ultimate test of what it means to really face a dangerous situation, you know, just really be confronted with such immediate hurt to yourself and your sense of self and your heart. I mean, it's just, it's a brutal, a brutal thing to hear, I think, from that character's viewpoint. And yet we have every reason to think that while his heart rate might or might not go above 80, that he's able to actually kind of take it in and grow from it as opposed to just sort of letting it slide off him um, in this Mm -hmm. kind of unhealthy way. Yeah, at a psychological level, there's first there's the child eclipsing the parent, this this moment, which is one of my favorite things to see in in stories. In many ways, it's been done brilliantly in so many different examples. But this idea of realizing that the parent is not who the child always thought they were. But the the natural response after that on a psychological level is wanting to save them. It's, I see you're struggling and I want to save you. And then the film at least gives time for that as well. Because as you say, and the screenplay is very anticlimactic in the sense that he finds his father essentially dead you know like the communication the big revelation he gets is from the messages that are left at the space station and not from his father himself and so in in this film we get to see him actually try and take his dad back like there's this hope that even though he's found him in the state okay he's been alone for so long he tries to take him back to earth the guy is a wanted criminal at this point it's unclear what kind of life they could have if he does go back to earth and perhaps that has some part to play in in clifford's motivation of releasing himself into the void of escaping roy that last time and and just basically committing suicide instead of going back but there's also just a sense that it's talking to us on a more psychological level of you cannot change your parents they are separate human beings mm-hmm. and you might have that inherent need when the tables flip that you can be there to offer the support, but you might not have that accepted. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I feel like 
to get pedantic for a second, eclipse is such an interesting word to use, I think, in referral for reference to this kind of situation, because I think, you know, when the moon moves in front of the sun in an actual eclipse, everything looks different and weird for a second, but ultimately it leaves, right? Like the sun goes Mm -hmm. back to normal, it rises again. And in some respects, that is exactly the journey we got with Clifford and Roy, where it was just Roy's own movement in front of Clifford that he actually kind of changed in any way. But like ultimately Clifford stayed the same, nothing really, nothing altered for him. And I think it's interesting also that we do get, you know, like you're saying, the almost kind of childlike hope from Roy about taking his dad back with him where there's no reason to believe that if they made it back to earth, once they got out of that capsule, they would ever see each other again. Like they would probably just lock up Clifford. They, as uh, Helen notes, they have no reason to kind of <laughs> publicize this massive mistake on Spacecom's part and ruin this idea of a hero. But I think you still kind of get that sense that that's what he wants to do. He wants to take him home and see what happens um, and just see what they can do. And I think it is it is interesting because he does affect Clifford ultimately in that way. When Clifford says, I have to stay out here, you know, I have to find aliens. I have to, you know, I have to know that what I did wasn't for nothing. Roy just very kind of quietly is like, you did find something. Now we know, like we can go home now. You did this. You like this work wasn't for naught. We can leave. And I think to some that kind of empirical absence of a definition can be comforting. You know, you put in your time, you go home, that's it. You you did what you could. And, you know, for Clifford, it is just obviously not. He can't, he can't imagine a world in which he's a failure. He can't imagine a world that is earth anymore. He just doesn't want to be part of it. Um, and he just can't handle it. And it's almost like the kind of impulses of these two inner children as they're climbing on top of the the structure to leave and you know Clifford kicks himself off and Roy is desperately holding on and it's just this kind of competing childlike impulses of these two grown men yeah and I, I mean I, I love how you kind of went back to the idea of what the eclipse actually represents because of course it's the idea that these satellites planetary bodies whatever you want to call them they're on a trajectory and so like we know there's no force in physics that's really going to stop any of the planets going around the sun or the moon going around the earth it's it's going to continue it's, it's just one of the laws of of physics that, that they're in an orbit and they're going to continue that way until some time period that we cannot even imagine and there's just something about that in in terms of this eclipse where you know roy has finally caught up with it but he's never really going to catch capture him it just seems like they're together for a moment but really he's that trajectory was launched 30 years before Roy is younger and that is that is kind of the the reality with children and parents is you don't share the exact same timeline of life yeah you, know, that you overlap for a point of life yeah and I think something that the screenplay kind of brings up again and again is the vacuum of space, but they specifically bring it up in relation to sound. Um, you know, as it's writing out the descriptions of so many of these kind of action scenes, they talk about, uh, 
you know, how they're all happening in silence um, and how it's astonishing in these explosions and this carnage, you know, it's just even more ferocious and beautiful because you can't hear it. And while I love that because I love a silent space explosion, mm-hmm. I think what's interesting about the film is how much the vacuum of space feels more visual and kind of discombobulating, you know, watching these, these bodies um, or, you know, the lunar rover, what have you, kind of all these things just spitting out through space and really having to wrap your mind around the idea that nothing will stop them if nothing gets in their way. Um, It's Mm -hmm. just, it's not, for obvious reasons, not something we have to think about in our daily life. And I think that that, like so many things, just feels like such an elegant illustration of what sometimes those emotional tailspins can feel like, you know, where it's just so easy to kind of get caught up in that spin and not being able to pull yourself out of it because it's just this frictionless environment. And sometimes the only thing you can do is, for lack of a less trite metaphor on my own part, you know, just kind of pick up your own little space shield and just blast yourself through the rings of Neptune with your own you know, your own initiative. You're the one who has to pick yourself up after each bad day. You're the one who has to make sure all these things get done. And the hope is that you end up more like Roy, who's able to pull himself out of that spin one way or another than Clifford, who just decides to resign himself to it. Hmm. And yeah, just going back, I don't know, obviously, who wrote each line and we can just kind of collectively ascribe them to James Gray and <laughs> Ethan Gross, but there's a couple of those moments as the, obviously the the chase on the moon where there's a crash and in the screenplay it's described that this buggy is going to roll much further than you'll expect on Earth because there's no air resistance. And I think later there's an explosion and it just says deafening silence, which of course cannot, you know, these things cannot coexist. You you can't go death from silence. But when you read those words together, you go, I know that because I've seen those explosions, those silent explosions in space that make you feel like you should hear something, even though you, you mm-hmm. can't hear something. And there's just, a, I think, part of the power of science fiction itself is just this idea that so much of our philosophy, so much of the, the things we believe are true, are based on the conditions on Earth, of of our lived experience on Earth. And when you go into an environment where things don't function the way that we expect them to, there's just there's something really exciting about that in terms of it feeling like there's more potential to human beings than perhaps we've experienced because they're now in a new environment, not just the limitations of Earth that we're familiar with. Yeah. Um, I mean, I lead off my ad astra piece on bright dark room with a quote from arthur c clark about how what we could find in space is uh as much beyond our vision today as fire or electricity is beyond the imagination of a fish and i think for so long that felt like this kind of guiding principle of just you know yes it's tough to keep sinking even at its most basic level financial resources into something like a space program but we don't know what we could get out of it. We don't know what's out there. That's that's why we're doing this thing, kind of in the same way that humanity has always done this thing. And I think this film so beautifully gets at the idea of if you don't find anything, if this amounted to nothing but a very nice sightseeing tour of billions and billions of light years, 
how would you feel? And I think, again, I think the the final film holds the kind of duality of some people are going to feel great about that. Some people are going to feel okay about that. Some people will feel despondent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the screenplay is a little more, a little less clear in that respect. Um, you know, it's a little, it's got a much different sense of what, the emotional beats are in terms of, you know, like we've been talking about the midpoint, but also just what would make this journey worth it for even just Roy McBride. Yeah. And, uh, the, the ending of course is, I think it's in the narration is Clifford could only see what wasn't there, but the pictures of these other planets that are hospitable, that, that could support life, but they're not finding any evidence of life on them are beautiful, magnificent, full of awe and wonder. You know, that's what Roy sees and what Clifford saw was he. They're both looking at the same image and it's more of a psychological question. It's more about personality and the the value systems and the beliefs that each individual holds. And there is kind of a, a warning in there as well that when you start to not see the good in life, when you don't see the the glass as half full and you see it as half empty, that there's there's a real danger to that person in terms of who they're going to be who they're going how they're going to feel how they're going to live what they could become and so you know ad astra to me is just one of these films that i think has been kind of misunderstood by quite a few people and it probably will actually maybe either be rediscovered later or you know stand the test of time in a certain way because i i feel like it's it's one of those entries into the the canon of science fiction that really looked at it from a completely different perspective and looked at really what what we are like as people today in that environment. Yeah, I mean, I feel like everybody I've talked to who didn't like it, it had to do a lot with not being what you thought it would be, you know, and just sort of, you know, the, the, I feel like the big takeaway for a lot of people is just that it's very slow. It's very quiet. You know, it's just a different kind of space adventure than they're used to um, or thought they were getting, uh, which I definitely empathize with because I think I didn't dislike it on first watch, but it was definitely not the movie night I had in mind when I first saw it. And I think you're right that through revisiting it and kind of understanding the film as it is rather than what you want it to be, there's definitely a much richer film and a much richer experience to be had in so many different ways. And it's such an interesting entry into kind of this canon of big space epics that's just so lovingly muted in so many ways. Mm. And James Gray himself, you know, I, I feel like he he really emphasized certain influences. Of course, even the title of the film is a reference to Virgil. You know, he's he's making statements that suggest that what he's written and what he's made here has has a lot more depth to it than can easily be dismissed and that some of the silences or the absences are there like you said like when you add a silence into something there can be a purpose to it and in an interview it might be leaving that silence there gets someone to say something and with filmmaking sometimes when you leave a silence to an audience that is accustomed to being bombarded and entertained for the pure two-hour runtime and not having a moment to think, it actually opens up this space that I think ties into what we were talking about right at the beginning of our conversation, which is that 
everyone has an individual experience of a film. There's filmmakers like Terence Malick, for example, who will leave a lot of spaces and a lot of silences in his films so that his audience will take the time to catch up and think about what the scenes they've seen previously rather than just kind of being swept along. So um, there's a risk to doing it, but there's a risk to making any kind of work of art. You have to be willing to take those risks and put in a, a silence here or there if you think it might be the right moment for it. So yeah, I'm, I quite enjoyed it, is what I'm saying, basically. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the silences and the, the pacing of the film. And it's, luckily, it's not a three and a half hour long runtime or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very, it's a very interestingly paced film where I get the, the people who say it's slow because again, it's kind of just deep in your chest kind of emotional stakes. But it is very, you know, it moves very fast. I think by like minute twenty five, minute thirty, they're already on the moon. You know, we've already kind of flown. It's a very good setup. You don't feel like you've lost anything in the kind of getting to another planet, nothing like that. And I think something I was thinking about on this watch was about the idea that what Clifford is obsessed with is specifically extraterrestrial life and listening and looking for that rather than, I don't know, like better energy sources or something like that. You know, that's not something that I think we can all kind of come behind as a, or kind of gather behind as like a, a useful thing necessarily it's like so if we heard or knew about alien life then what you know it kind of it matters so much what that alien life looks like and how far away they are we might even if we can hear them or see them or talk to them we might not ever actually be able to like meet them and exchange anything in particular or understand them and i think to some to some level it probably gets at a lot of the things that James Gray has done, you know, like you were saying in The Lost City of Z, it's not unlike this kind of colonialist narrative of like, how do you understand a culture? What's the benefit of understanding another culture and interacting with them in that way? But I think it's also kind of nicely works with just the innate kind of comfort and fear that comes with silence. And I was thinking about this line from this book called The Holy Theater, where it's we have largely forgotten silence. It even embarrasses us. We clasp our hands me mechanically because we do not know what else to do. And we are unaware that silence is also permitted, that silence is also good. And I think that is specifically in re reference to, you know, after, like after watching a play or a movie or just, you know, a work of art and kind of being what your reaction is. You know, some people are compelled to put their hands together and clap and some people just kind of want to sit with it for a second. And I think that that's just the interesting kind of nuance that comes with different responses, but also different appreciations for what this mission ultimately is that Clifford is so valiantly taking upon himself and kind of, you know, if not wrecking his life over, then at least certainly collapsing his life into. No, I think you're, you're onto something there, especially that's been many people's response to lockdown quarantine the, the the fallout of the pandemic is how do i fill all this time what can i do what what can i what can i be doing throughout all this time and the the actual just sitting with it the silence even there is is tough for people because it involves confronting things in a different way so it's uh yeah good thing to think about as well and um 
I'm trying to think if there's anything else you'd like to add to kind of close off the conversation. Um, I don't know. I feel like we've touched on so much. I can't, the only thing I've, that I have in my notes that I just keep like repeating to, cause I drew so many question marks, exclamation points. I guess he blew up a moon Clifford did in the screenplay. This doesn't even have to be like a big discussion for the podcast. I just thought that was a surprising <laughs> thing that, you know, in the movie, it's so much, so much about how the byproduct, this kind of fallout that's affecting earth and Mars and the moon is uh, the byproduct of, experiment gone wrong and how aside from that it's you know that's really the whole thing and then in the in the screenplay they just kind of are like yeah he blew up larissa it's not great it's bad (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a there's definitely kind of this um the things that happen all the all the plot stuff is probably the best way of saying Mm -hmm. it with that Aster, I think sometimes the plot stuff is not the most compelling, but the story stuff is, if you mm. know what I mean. If the story is about yeah. Roy and his eventual confrontation with his father after so many years of absence, that story to me is really compelling. And the plot, which are the, the pieces along the way or like the dynamics of how different things of the world kind of what needs to happen to get us from point A to point B aren't necessarily the bits that really grip me about it. But then again, I wouldn't, you know, dismiss all of it because I do think that some of the the creation, some of the imagination of, you know, the the mole on the moon or the airport on the moon, the subways, mm-hmm. McDonald's, these kind of things and fighting over resources, that element of him filling out the world I really enjoyed and just thought oh my God, this is actually <laughs> much more believable than many other things we've we've seen in science fiction. So it feels so grounded in reality. Yeah, that all of it seems born out of a reality we can you know, definitively recognize, even if it's still kind of like, oh yeah, I guess there would be a DHL on the moon. Sure. Um, and you know, even as a byproduct of that, uh, I only noticed on this kind of view that um, Roy's trip to the moon you know, like we've been saying, very heavily inspired by 2001 and kind of the idea of what if a plane, except you're on your way to the moon, and yet it also, there's eight people on that flight, you know, or maybe somewhere around there, you know, it's a small capsule that it takes this huge rocket and then the tiny capsule breaks off and that's the thing that actually lands on the moon. That's the thing that actually has the people in it. You know, and he asked for like a basic pillow and blanket and it costs $125. Like there is kind of this innate sense of mankind is starting to travel. We know we have bases on different places. We have a couple thousand people on Mars. We have people born on Mars who, you know, went to Earth once in their life and their body can't really handle the, the gravity or whatever. But at the same time, it's such a segmented, militarized, restricted travel that it does it's just not feasible on like a fundamental level yeah well sasha i think we've had a really lovely conversation about uh this ad astra and i honestly can't think of anything else to add at this point (laughs) so uh i think we can end it there but thank you so much for um you know agreeing to come onto the podcast to talk about it and um obviously i look forward to reading some more of your articles in Brightwall Darkroom. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast.